bravery is there in the way they play. And what about Peter O'Mahony? I just oh, thought a sensational performance. Yeah. Jack O'Donoghue and Hodnett, the three of them in the back row. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now, you're very welcome along. Joe Malloy with you this afternoon. Very happy to say, both in studio, first time since 2020, I've had two newspaper guests here in studio. Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. Great to have you in. Hi, Joe. And Dan McDonnell of the Irish Independent. Daniel, hello. Joe, Dion, how are things? Daniel. So, uh, the back pages then, the Sun have Guardiola here. Staying is their headline. They say, uh, much like Jurgen Klopp, new Pep deal to 2025. Uh, City restore one point lead. They had a 4-0 win against Leeds yesterday. So it seems that Pep Guardiola will stay at the Etihad until 2025. And then they have Khan with the win. Khan O'Callaghan back for Dublin yesterday. They were emphatic winners against uh, Wexford. 124 to four point winners. We have the Sunday Times uh, top right hand corner I guess this is the, the way of the world unfortunately for the Sunday papers uh, certainly the uh, paper edition Katie Taylor how did she do for a report of her big world uh, fight you can go to the sundaytimes.ie forward slash sports so they do have Katie on the front page and she did win on a points decision I'm sure you've seen by now and beneath that Adele McMahon celebrating Neve Jones's uh, first half try at the Kingspan happy ending and it was right at the death that the Irish Women's rugby team avoided the Six Nations wooden spoon with a try in the 82nd minute. Beneath that, Raiola death leaves cloud over Pogba and Halland transfers. This is Mino Raiola who passed away after uh, lung issues over the last number of months. So uh, he represents numerous players, including Paul Pogba and Merlin Halland, amongst others. Sunday independent then. So the Premier League race continues and... The headline there of Sam Wallace and Jim White. Pressure bills with title climax looming. And the picture is Conor Callaghan, Return of the King. Uh, big relief for Dublin to have him back yesterday. There were doubts over his participation this year's championship. Sunday World also going with the dubs. Brian Fenton was uh, brilliant, or as they say, fantastic last night. And Klopp's in love is the headline. Uh, Jurgen Klopp has declared he is loving the nail-biting Premier League finale. Sunday Mirror going with Liverpool's uh, win at Newcastle as their main picture. Cop Nabbit, Naby Keita with the goal. And uh, above Man City's win at Ellen Road, which did look on the face of it like something of a banana skin, but they won well in the end. Mail on Sunday, back page, we can take the pressure again. This is uh, the words of Guardiola and Klopp, both saying they can... Uh, take the pressure and Mino's mission will continue say family after his death uh, Mino's mission of making football a better place for players will continue said the family and sometimes uh, back page sports people make the front pages in this instance front page of the Mail on Sunday Stephen Roach Stephen Roach is guilty of fraud is the headline on the Mail on Sunday this is Michael O'Farrell the investigations editor and Jared Cousins in Spain uh, cycling hero Stephen Roach has been ordered to pay €750,000 after a Spanish court found he uh, bankrupted his Marbella firm and plundered its assets to finance a luxury lifestyle, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. This is uh, what they refer to as a damning civil court ruling. They found that Mr Roach deliberately and consciously stripped the assets from his cycling holiday firm rather than repay creditors before disappearing from Marbella in 2017. He has now been banned from acting as a company director. 
turning to page six in Spain for uh, seven years and could be exposed to criminal prosecution. Uh, the Mail on Sunday did speak to Stephen Roach uh, last night, who lost his father, Larry, this week, they had as well. And he says, I'll bounce back definitely. I promised my dad I would. The big thing is we're appealing. It's not definitive. So the company here in question, Shamrock Events, they went bust in 2017, says the piece, leaving creditors out of pocket. The creditors mainly hotels where paying customers would stay as part of the package. It's a 41-page ruling from the Palma Commercial Court and uh, they conclude that Mr Roche did not heed staff warnings that his firm was in trouble and that he worsened the situation by using company funds to finance a luxury lifestyle is what it says here. Uh, So the judge says Mr Roche was perfectly conscious of its debt situation and instead of adopting measures to avoid financing the company or entering into voluntary insolvency, he continued to loot the company accounts for his own private use when there was a minimum amount of income in them. Uh, Mr Roach's expenditure on things like golf, apartment rentals, hotels in Switzerland and hungry restaurants, clothes are all evidence of a life of luxury and spending while his creditors weren't paid, say the uh, court. So again, Stephen Roach did speak to the Mail on Sunday last night. He said to the Mail on Sunday, I've seen the document the same as as you've seen and I do appreciate it's not very nice. Uh, The big thing is we're appealing. It's not definitive. He said, we need to wait until the appeal goes through. I can't talk about it now, but there's no proof of a lot of things and there are huge consequences for something that's not totally clear. And he said there was a lot going on with COVID and everything else. I haven't had access to all the information. He's intending to sit down with his lawyers from Monday and have uh, meetings to prepare their case. They have 15 days to appeal. And finally, he said, people will believe whatever they want to believe at the end of the day. It is what it is. I'm trying to bounce back. Uh, I will bounce back, definitely. I promised my dad I would. So Stephen Roach there speaking to the Mail on Sunday about that situation in Spain. The uh, Mino Raiola news there on all the front pages. Extraordinary figure in many respects, Dion. I'm sure uh, you wondered, as we all did at times, how when Paul Pogba went to Manchester United for 89 million that he reportedly received 41 million for that deal. I always wondered that. I wondered how... Pogba, Manchester United or Juventus thought that was a good situation but whatever way Raiola worked it worked and uh, now he's passed away a lung issue I mean it was curious on uh, Thursday there was a report that he had passed away and he took to Twitter to dispel that and yesterday uh, it was announced uh, in far more sombre fashion so Mina Raiola passed away at a very young age 54 Yeah it's uh, it's very sad Um and uh, yeah, clearly this week there was the, um, you know, that slightly distasteful way. It, it seemed to kind of uh, people seemed to be going to try to break the story, um, before you know when he was when he was alive, uh, but like an extraordinary figure. And as you say, I think the reason uh, players are allowed are, are are content when he he does a deal like the Pogba deal because they feel that over the course of their association with them, there will be a lot coming their way too that wouldn't have come their way if it wasn't for him. Uh, now, you could argue that uh, both both ways, really, you could wonder if that's really true, what, what, what agents do to persuade players in some instances that they are so essential to their lives. But then you, you read in, in, in the piece in the Sunday Times... Uh, 
um, you know, about Raiola and his relationship with his players. And again, you get that example of how players outsource so much to agents and other people. And that's, you know, that's not, that isn't a, a new thing, but it's clearly, it's, it's, it's more and more widespread in terms of, you know, players doing that. And it says, you know, the line, <coughs> Raiola was the man, Mario Balotelli, then of Manchester City, called when his Cheshire mansion was on fire. Raiola advised him to call the fire brigade. But his first call was to Raiola. <laughs> then he thought about the fire brigade. As the fire, you know, I don't know where the fire was at this point, how close it was to Balotelli. But he said, I'll get, I'll get Mino onto this. Thank God he answered. Yeah, well, I'd say he always answered. I mean, that's one of the things you can be sure of. But like, this is the way, and like Dan knows this uh, as well, you know, this, you know, that sense ever-growing sense of footballers basically saying you have control of uh, of our lives and you know I remember years and years ago an old football an old kind of sports company exec telling sitting around telling stories about a very very famous footballer uh, and how he had been done over by his his agents at the time and the story and always stuck me the story he gave was this guy was always losing mobile phones uh, and he was with him one day and he lost he'd realised he'd lost his mobile phone and he said oh, lost it I lost it that's another grand down the drain <laughs> because every time he lost a phone he called his agent and said will you get me a new phone and his agent billed him a grand for the Oof. phone yeah uh, now Riola obviously looked after his players and everything but again just that dependency that was, was there and again you know when you see his conflict with somebody like Ferguson who wanted to be that person mm. in uh in the players' lives, mm. and like that, there is there is an ego clash there too because Ferguson fell out with people. He fell out with uh, Paul Stratford. He fell out with people who had a hold over players because he wanted to be that person. And I think in the, in the Mail on Sunday piece is interesting. The Raiola there's a quote from Raiola where he says he would have loved to have had uh, Paul Gascoigne mm. as a player um, because he felt he would have you know he would have saved him. The exact same thing Alex Ferguson has always said. You know, they they see themselves, they saw themselves as similar figures in their players' lives, and I think that's why someone like Ferguson, who called Raiola a shitbag, uh, kind of came into came into conflict with him. Mm. Mm, like Ferguson, even so, I would have worked with Keith Gillespie on his book a number of years ago now, and he would have told a story about how when Keith Gillespie was the make weight in the Andy Cole to Newcastle transfer. It was actually Ferguson who did the contract negotiations for Gillespie with uh, with Newcastle at this point, and actually sort of, you know, they bumped up what Gillespie was earning at Manchester United to sort of uh, get him in more favourable terms with Newcastle. And there was that degree of like he was still the overlord. But like what I find about this isn't it? Like football is like a you know a global industry, you know, populated by hundreds, you know, thousands of agents. Yeah, clearly there's these couple of super agents who manage to like elevate themselves to a status that they are the ones you have to go to. And like, in fairness, whatever you would say about Royola, and you can call him a shit bag or you can call him whatever. Like, um, but like Jorge Mendes was working in a nightclub or something, wasn't he? He had some sort of like, you know, an unremarkable background. Um, like, you know, Raiola was working in a family restaurant, you know, like he moved to Holland as a kid from Italy. It's not as if he's sort of a, I don't know, some ex-player who had the keys handed to him or something like that. Like there's clearly an incredible skill 
and sort of resourcefulness and a sort of a brilliant brain there. However they chose to use it and you will, we will all talk and we will have long discussions about the scourge of agents. And you know, a lot of those points could be very, very valid, but in some other ways you have to admire the sort of, the, the, the sort of, I don't know, the, the work ethic even, to be on call all the time, just in case a player sets his house on fire, you know, to be there at all times. And I think it's the Simon Jones piece in the, in the mail today, the mail on Sunday, who was clearly a reporter who would have dealt with him. And, you know, he's a highly intelligent man who could converse in seven languages. Mm. Royola was gregarious, witty and caring. Though you could never leave a voicemail on his phone, you could text or if lucky he would answer you or call you back. After gaining his trust, he would keep in touch. Now, obviously, what you're saying from that is that clearly Royola was directly himself a very useful source on stories that were going on. and. He obviously was able to use that to his advantage on several occasions. Um, but you do see the sort of the super agent that I actually haven't read, and maybe this has been written before, how Haaland came to be Royola's, you know, the, you know how that happened. Because obviously his dad is involved in football, Alfinga, you know, so he would have had the ability to navigate certain things. But clearly at some stage, someone says, no, you need to go yeah. with Royola because he's the one who gets deals done for you. Mm. Let's turn to uh, Neil Francis. This is in the main Sunday Times section as opposed to the sports section. Cocaine, the hidden scourge of schoolboy rugby in Ireland is the headline. It's the front page as well, we should say, on the front page of the, of the newspaper. Boys are tempted by the drug over drinking beer while girls see it as an appetite suppressant, one of the bylines. So it starts with an anecdote from a Leinster Senior Cup game. I'm taking it fairly recently and the group at large are in the pub after the game. And Neil Francis writes, a colleague who had a son on the team was there and at one point went to the men's bathroom. When he walked in, at least seven of the players were snorting cocaine. So we're talking 16, 17 year olds here. And Neil Francis says they continued to snort the powder right in front or sorry, right in the middle of the room with the coaches, teachers and rest of the parents outside, blissfully unaware of what was going on just a couple of metres away. That's all I can say about that incident, apart from the fact that my information is first hand and it is true. If some rugby schools are doing cocaine, are not the GEA schools and football schools of Ireland doing it too, he asks. And he says later, some schools know there is an issue. He says a number of them employ companies to send sniffer dogs into the locker rooms and the common areas during the academic year. He says of rugby at large, several rugby clubs are known for having, quote, a marching powder tradition. There's one club in Dublin where literally the entire squad is using cocaine and has a supplier on board. And he describes the amateur game as a hotbed for cocaine and says generally drug taking somehow became fashionable in the 60s and 70s. Now it's reached the point where many people will not think twice about taking cocaine, in particular children. It's on that basis I had to write about it is how he starts off. So that catches the eye, doesn't it? You know, it does. And it's um, like it's a sort of a quite a detailed piece because it spins into a sort of, um, you know, page four inside a, a sort of a whole broadsheet page almost. Um, and, you know, a mixture of sort of anecdotal tales. Um, and it sort of spins out towards the end into a broader discussion, I suppose, of like um, speculating how much cocaine was used at Croke Park last weekend, you know, for the Ed Sheeran gig. and. And it goes on. Like he mentions, for example, because testing is obviously an issue here. You know, in, in schools, rugby, it does not matter. Uh, this is with regard to sort of being vulnerable to testers because by law, you cannot test a 17-year-old at a game unless their parents are with them and consent. 
um, references drug tests after international matches and so on. I mean, it is a, a an interesting talking point broadly. I mean, to me, sometimes like you know, a lot of the problems that exist within sport, you know, they're just an extension of societal issues in many respects. You know, like cocaine is rampant in in Irish life now. Like anyone, you know, who is immune to that just isn't talking to people. You know, and it is um, something that naturally you know, without sort of being broadly sort of generalizing, but, you know, the, the, the age profile of people playing sport competitively now would overlap with areas of life where you would imagine there's quite a large volume of use. Um, and it is one of these where you look at it and you say, what do you do? And it's like, you know, what, what do you actually do about it? But I think um, maybe, you know, it's something that maybe isn't written about too much. Um, like for example, like you know, every so often the topic of drugs and football would come up. It's obviously very, you know, it's just clearly you know would be, you know, concerns about the high end of football, how it hasn't had, you know, a, a drugs scandal, um, unlike maybe other sports, you know, where you've sort of cycling and various other sports which are sort of have been very well exposed in this regard. And of course, as any sort of journalist would, like you would sort of ask questions and stuff and. I've you know, asked questions to people within football on a number of occasions about well, what's the issue there. And it's been put to me, I remember being put to me very clearly at one stage that what, no, there, if you're talking about a drug issue in football, what you don't realise is the amount of people who are like risking their career for the sake of a good Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, the, the levels of sort of testing, um, you would say, would, be, would still be modest. You know? And the, you'd hear the odd anecdotal tale of like, a, you know, a tester popping up somewhere on a Sunday or a Monday and sort of lads heading for the car park, you know, in an absolute panic. Um, and this is just an extension of, of, of life at the moment, you know, and this is the, the issue. The, the, now, the 16, 17 year old aspect of this is still a, a small bit shocking, I have to say, but maybe, again, I don't know what 16, 17 year olds are doing, but at a sort of older age, it's not surprising at all. Well, that struck me as well, Dion, the headline, The Hidden Scourge of Schoolboy Rugby in Ireland. It's really just the scourge of society in Ireland. And the fact that it's reached schoolboy rugby shows the extent of that scourge. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably true, although there may be some other, other elements in in, uh, in terms of, you know, that's sort of schoolboy rugby promotion of kind of, you know, people become, become heroes at a very early age. And maybe there's some... Uh, um, feeding of that mindset in terms of you know when if it are when you know a drug like cocaine what it does for that kind of mindset, <clears throat> but I do think it is about about society and I think Neil Francis does make that point. Yeah, um, I would say, uh, and like when Dan says that uh, cocaine is rampant in Irish society, I would say, and this will come back to this in a, a couple of other pieces. I would say addiction is rampant in Irish society. Uh, cocaine may be the way that addiction is manifesting itself for a lot of people. I would wonder about one thing Neil Francis says in this piece when he says people, you know, young people, no, I don't know. I'm not in pubs. I don't know. I, I don't drink. I don't know. But maybe he's when he says people are using cocaine instead of alcohol because it's, you know, athletes want to use it. I would I, I would suspect there's an awful lot of people, and again, in, in wider society, who are using it in combination with alcohol, and they're using it and they drink more because of it. Now, th the damage that's doing to people's health physically is huge, 
because you're able to you're drinking more because you're taking cocaine you're um uh and and you're taking and you're taking cocaine so it's it's a, it's a it's a toxic combination so i don't know and i there are, there are elements of it like that but i do think it is it is a it is a huge danger but again it is i would look at it as facing up dealing with something and dealing with the issue in terms of how you deal with addiction in society rather than saying let's make and it is and i read it and now i've i've a much younger son but like when i read it i'm like my god he's only 8 years away from being in a pub doing this and i have to worry about it uh and clearly because it's but i would also worry if he was you know i'll i'll have the same worries about if he's if he's if he's drinking i'll have the same worries if he's doing, if he's you know if he's taking taking the the drug that we all consider to be socially acceptable so i think it it, it is about having addiction now clearly there are other elements to cocaine use it is a very as you know and in in a sporting context as as neil francis lays out it is hugely dangerous to be taking it well he says on that point so he says if you're male and you're out for the night why would you drink seven or eight points when the net result is a hangover and an inability to work out the next day that beer also goes directly to the bottom line your gut and that is anathema to any self-respecting youngster who craves a sculpted body for the athlete cocaine is deadly it's one of the strongest vasco constrictors on the planet, tightening up blood vessels and restricting the flow. And he says, therefore, there is the risk of heart attack when you're exer- exercising afterwards or with it in your system. And he does uh, talk very generally. He's not saying this is just a sports problem. I've lost a number of friends, acquaintances through drug use, primarily involving cocaine. When I say lost, I mean they had strokes or heart attacks or they overdose. Some kill themselves. Others uh, I lost are still alive, but their lives are ruined. And he talks about, you know, depression often a cause of suicide can, of course, be caused by manufacturers. But what percentage, he asks, of young adults become depressed as a result of taking drugs? And he talks about teenagers and 20-somethings hopelessly ill-prepared to deal with the lows that automatically come after cocaine use, the anxiety, restlessness, increased irritability, paranoia, full-blown psychosis. I think that's a, I do think that's a, it, there's, there, again, look, this is, you know, there this is a, a, a really it's so wide range very classic Neil Francis piece in that in that sense that it goes you know it touches on so many areas it makes some some generalizations that you might query yeah mm-hmm. um like for example when he says to me it is never the, when he's talking about depression following on from cocaine use he says to me it is never the other way around our children don't get depressed first and then start taking drugs now I think anyone who knows anyone with any experience of addiction will know that's not always the truth that yeah. again whether it's it's drink or drugs mm. that there can be people who for whatever reason are go to them as a way of kind of escaping whatever yes. uh, ever they're feeling they're in a lot of pain they need escape but it? equally mm-hmm. i think for 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 new francis to be naming it is important because we do have an awful lot and we kind of come back to this in when we talk about the tony adams piece in particular yeah. we do have a lot of times where we talk about depression and mental mental health stuff in in an abstract in a slightly abstract sense and we don't talk about the things that actually get you there mm. like like drink and like cocaine so it, it's very important for him to be saying these are the things uh because if, if you've got if you've got somebody if you've got a 17 or 18 year old who's talking about being depressed and you're and you're you're kind of saying let's treat let's treat let's get them to talk to let's talk to somebody about that and that's useful and that's helpful. But if they're going out and taking cocaine, 
the other stuff isn't going to do much good without addressing that issue. And it's the same with alcohol. If mm. you're going out and you're talking to somebody or you're uh, trying to deal with your depression, if you're not actually dealing with the thing that's triggering the depression in those instances or dealing with a thing that is actually going to uh, accelerate the depression yeah. or, the depress or depressive moods, then you're not having the right conversation. I think though as well, I think the point in the context of the sporting discussion, like I think what he's hinting to there is the extent to which it's almost become normalised though, as the part of like the team night out, the, the post-match celebration, the post-match yeah. sort of event, you know, and I mean we are at a time, where, and again, you end up going into generalisation mode here as well, but people have spoken about this previously, it is a lot more, and he does touch on it, people are a little bit more image conscious now you, you don't necessarily see the young sporting athletes drink their 10 or 12 points if you know what i mean this is like the acceptable face in it in the same way that you would have a a big issue i think with say uh say steroids in ireland you know and, and sort of around the sort of the the gym use and the gym bodies and all of that and the sort of the again you end up like very generalized mode about I think people are a lot more conscious of how they look, you know, in their presentation than, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, even mm. the young lads, you mm. know, it's always the young lads and their bodies. And there's a different sort of fuel that's been used for that. And but but even you do, again, you hear these tales that maybe at the end of a season or at the end of a campaign, this is something that you do. Yeah. You know, and that's what he touches to when a, a, you're talking about a team having a sort of a specified you know, dealer that looks after them. It's mm. almost like, well, this is what you happen. And there's a broader debate around testing, I still think, in, in sports in Ireland, which again is a separate issue to the societal thing we're talking about here. But I mean, uh, I don't know, there's, there's so many layers to it, but um, the, the, you know, sometimes, like, it's, it, people know they're gonna get away with it too, you know? And that's obviously, um, it's a, <laughs> For some people, it's that the, you hear these tales that it's the it's it's the one thing they can do without fear of almost repercussion. Whereas you know, sort of other things when you're being tested for your body fat and various other things, it's not the same. And that's why well, it's slipped I, in. That's why it's slipped in to yeah, an accepted but, part of it now. But I think know? it is important, and I think this has happened in England a, a bit, where when people fail tests for drugs like cocaine. Uh, they do take a, a rehabilitation first approach to it mm. because it is it is important to recognize it as as part of a society thing rather than a sporting issue yeah in terms of like these people like people who do, who maybe fail those tests need treatment rather than saying we've got a drug cheat here or we've yeah. got you know we're going to name this person because uh they're not they're they're they they're, they're, they're the damage is essentially this is a terrible cliche, but really the damage they're doing is to themselves. Yeah, mm. uh, and the, it needs to be addressed in terms of whatever issues they might have. But again, you know, it's also as as you say, it's something they think they can do without without uh, consequence. Yeah, like a lot of the people who are engaging with it aren't necessarily troubled in any way. It's actually just become so recreationally. Well, I was just going to say, you, you there's no I mean? doubt like there's an extraordinary it, surge at the moment. I mean, yeah. you think to so many instances, remember the uh, scenes ahead of the Euro 2020 final where yeah. uh, the Sky News camera just uh, petrified to come across another random fan snorting a white powder yeah. because it was yeah. just uh, so commonplace. I had a really odd experience uh, late last year. I've been out for dinner and it was still, we were eating outdoors, uh, not a million miles away from here. I don't want to name the restaurant, but it's a, it was a really busy street. It was like seven o'clock. 
the odd experience where just there was a well-dressed three fellas, one girl, all the lads in black tie tuxes, middle of the street, people walking up and down. And he took out whatever he was using, white substance, snorted it, but didn't even like turn to the wall. Do you know, didn't yeah, yeah. like, you know, yeah. he, he would have uh, urinated with far more decorum on the street. Like mm. it was middle of the street. Didn't even like, I'm going to just walk here to the corner. Mm. Like just did it. And we were so like, it sort of caught all our eye. And there was a degree of like almost a wry smile of, is this, are we so out of touch with, because he was, I'd say he was early 20s. Tops. Right. But we were like, man, are we this out of touch? Is that just so the norm now? Yeah. You see, it's hard to measure these things. I don't have the stats on cocaine use because yeah. people aren't generally... Um, advertising their usage but um, yeah it was a kind of extraordinary moment I'm yeah. sure maybe it was happening 20 years ago but uh, it does feel like yeah. there's a real scourge at the moment Yeah. to move it on because we're talking addiction here and I think that's uh, you know Dion's point there's a lot of people just looking for escapism of, of some kind so Tony Adams extraordinary interview in the Sunday Times with Jonathan Northcroft uh, Tony Adams the former Arsenal captain legendary figure 66 England caps, nearly 700 Arsenal appearances, four-time league winner, very famously uh, wrote addicted as a player and became sober at the age of 29. He is now uh, embarking on a theatre tour, like a one-man show. And he's talking about everything from his childhood panic attacks to being bullied at school, he says here, to becoming so deep in a world of drink that he once left his young son in a pub for three days. There were drugs, prostitutes, fights, regular times of soiling the bed. There was prison a car crash depression. Now, his second memoir is Sober in 2017. Addicted was written in 1998. He says of Sober, it's more grown up, but sex and sickness sells. The purpose of Sober is to get more people clean, to help with people's mental health. It has more tools, more guidance, more emotional intelligence. So uh, tickets are selling very well. He said, I should break just about even. And if I make a profit, I'll give it to my charity. His charity is Sporting Chance, which he set up in the year 2000. That has treated 1,200 sports people through rehab and counselling. He makes an interesting observation about how sporting chance has changed. So he said, we now get more gambling addicts through the clinic than alcoholics. The drug of choice for Premier League footballers is gambling. Porn and gaming are the other growing fixes for young sports people with addictive personalities. Yeah, um, I interviewed Adams a few years ago and that was the point he was making as well, like that this was... Uh, and again, when you're talking about uh, consequences, if you have a need for adrenaline, if you're and you know, sporting chance deals with you know sports people in in the main, so it, it it's it's skewed towards towards that. And now we know, all know that gambling is a, a huge issue again in society at large. But for for sports people who again maybe can't can't drink because of the consequences they've an awful lot of time on their hands uh, they're trying to kill time it is it is the uh, it is the go-to in so many ways mm. um, and I remember Adams talking about various aspects you know just stuff around things he was campaigning for and uh, you know free bets and stuff like this that are, are, are still being pushed for, you know to push to people who are opting out and all that and I know in the UK and I know from talking to other people this week as well where the UK are going with, with their legislation on this is still way advanced of um, where we are you know and there's still an engagement there uh, that is lacking here we see we've we've decided here that once we get this regulator 
eventually. I think we might have talked about this the last time. Once we get this regulator, then everything is kind of in hand. Yeah. Been, we've been waiting 10 years for in, the in regulator. In much the same way that alcohol is very yeah, much yeah, in hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, that's one aspect of it. And uh, I'm just getting it up on my phone. So he, uh, but there's also, I, I just think, again, and this is what the link is to Neil Francis. Neil I, Francis. I think I have here what you're going to go on then expand on. So where Adams, it's a brilliant interview, by the way. This is just, I mean, when you think of the piece that Neil Francis wrote there and Tony Adams, someone of his stature talking this way, I mean, there's some great stuff in the papers. So he's talking about the culture of treatment around mental health. And he's, he gets very angry in this to the point where he says, sorry, Jonathan, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting now. So he says there are 18 people per day killing themselves. That statistic has not changed in 50 years. Seven and a half million of the adult population are on antidepressants because not every GP surgery has a mental health nurse and GPs have 15 minutes per appointment. So the easiest thing is to hand out a pill. And he says mental health campaigning is just noise. It drives me insane. And at that stage, he loses his composure yeah. a bit. And then he says... More trainings, training of practitioners, therapists, counsellors. That's what we need. I did an NHS thing the other day and the woman organising said, Tony, can you not mention addiction? Talk about your panic attacks, your PTSD, your anxiety, your depression. But for F's sake, don't talk about addiction. We've got no money and, resor- and resources. So don't talk about the thing. Talk about everything except the, the thing. thing. Yeah. Because if you talk about the thing, people might recognise that they too have this thing and we don't have any way of dealing with with the people who are going to come to us to look for treatment for that. Now, I, w- I would say if anyone is reading or is listening and thinking that I want to, you know, Tony Adams, and I remember reading Addicted and finding it an inspirational book. Mm. Um, and there are, you know, the way Tony Adams got help, the way he's, you know, that is always available to people. You know, those programs are always available to people. Yeah. Um, but the other stuff and, the, you know, the waiting list, and again, whatever whatever is true, about about happening in the UK now they they have a huge huge problem with NHS waiting lists everywhere in, in every s- sector in Britain at the moment. But you talk to anybody here about trying to get mental health appointments, trying to see somebody, mm. and it's shocking. Mm. It's really shocking uh, how long people. And again, as he says, you need this. You need this now. You need this today. Mm. Uh, not in six months. Not in two years. Whatever you're going to be told um and it's uh and it is because you know when you uh, that thing it's just that sense of be as abstract as you can be because we can't handle the, the the realities of actually saying this is you might need to be you might need to have, have treatment for this or you might need to deal with this so um you know it's a really and it's a you know it's a classic adam like adams anyone who's seen adams doing punditry knows he's kind of an ex- he is an eccentric person and it goes it goes off in tangents and uh sometimes when i'm like you know i kind of think you know <laughs> the sort of stuff he's talking about football i'm like is that what you really feel did that really happen like you know when he says emmanuel petit is the best player he ever played i feel like that's the thing he's just come up with in his head today mm. which is fine mm. it's not the key point of the of this interview of this interview mm. um and i think that is uh a really, a really kind of striking comment that he makes because, and it's an important one because uh, he says, I'm doing no more mental health day, days because just... Uh, uh, it's a cod. Uh, the Red Cross do very well in... Re- sorry, not the Red Cross. Charities like mine, the Samaritans, the Red Cross do very well in raising awareness, but they don't have support services. Mm. 
And that is, and again, without having the figures, but I think, you know, we know that that's also the issue here. Doesn't it all speak the say, the Neil Francis piece or the Tony Adams piece? And there's uh, an interview with Nicky Rackard's daughter and he was uh, an alcoholic and yeah. wrote about it, actually, which was quite revolutionary in the 1970s, which we'll come to in a moment. But it just speaks of how uh, flawed and fragile human beings are at large, how difficult life is. I was going to say modern life, but I think life's generally been pretty difficult down the centuries, if mm. you look, and how be it alcohol or drugs or increasingly porn or gambling, the masses are in a lot of pain and looking for any bits of escapism or any fix, as Tony Adam says, and the consequences are dire. And the states, not just the UK, not just Ireland, the states across the board, completely ill-equipped to deal with it. Everyone's doing the best they can. But this is just uh, a rife problem. And the commonality across all the pieces, be it Neil Francis, who says, I've no easy solution for this, or Tony Adam's, is that there is no solution yeah, it's, for this. It's not especially uplifting, really. Like, you know, I mean, it is no. it, it is like, um, you know, and, and without going in the road, like you're obviously coming off the back of a sort of, um, you know, a, a lengthy lockdown, which probably accelerated a lot of situations for people too, you know, or, or sort of, you know, led to some kind of re-evaluation or whatever. And, and uh, you know, services wouldn't have, would have been even less available than at that stage, you know, um, for obvious reasons. So... Yeah, and 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 I and I, I suppose you know, like we have, like the, the sort of the high end sports stars, and I mean, I mean to Tony Adams' point, I mean the, the headline that draws people in is like, well, you know, the the drug now, I don't have it quite in front of me, or the drug now is, drug is gambling, of is gambling. The drug of choice yeah. is gambling, for and Premier League footballers, yeah, for Premier League footballers, and that, but the story is obviously much deeper than that, but that obviously is the attention grabbing one, and I mean it is the extent to which. Um, you know the the story. Like it is still powerful. Someone like Tony Adams coming out and speaking. You know it does have a purpose. I know sometimes now there is a sense of you, you almost hear people grumbling with almost fatigued or hear someone else talking about their own some football talking about their issue. But it does actually matter to people. You know everyone who sort of finds a voice to sort of articulate their own experience because there's always someone searching or looking for that information or looking for help mm. even if they can't find a service they end up googling or reading or finding something looking for something and even someone like Tony Adams sort of speaking about his experiences and um, even if he doesn't paint a particularly cheery outlook and is a slightly different one than a first person sort of uh, tell all Um yeah I mean I don't know it's it's it is one of these debates where we're going around talking about the concerns, but where where do we go with it? You know, like it's 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 about sort of hoping that you you keep drumming home the point and yeah. that it raises broader raises the broader awareness of it. But it's funny. I did. Uh, I read the Tony Adams and the interview with Marion Rackard, Nikki Rackard's daughter, this morning before I read uh, Neil Francis, and I had was thinking, you know, I was thinking, what would we is there anything hopeful? And I was thinking the one thing before I read Neil Francis, the one thing I actually think that this generate, the younger generation have over previous generations, certainly in terms of alcohol, is that it's not the only way they have of going to bars are not the only way they have of meeting people, you know, meeting people they're attracted to meeting, you know, going out and having, you know, you have, you know, social media for all the stuff people, uh, criticize it for it allows people to connect in ways it doesn't mean you know when i was you know a teenager mm. it was 
drink, you know, go somewhere where you're going to get drink yourself stupid and, you know, hopefully meet, you know, that was that was the plan. That was the only plan. Now, maybe it's still the only plan a lot of the time, but there are other ways of connecting with people and staying in touch with people Mm. uh, and making contact with people, which, you know, for all the stuff we say about social media and all the problems of which are which which are true and which is it can be damaging. That is one aspect where you could actually take a little bit of hope. Then I read Neil Francis talking about cocaine use in 16, 7 years ago. Forget that. Yeah. But I do think uh, I guess one area now, you know, I don't know. Do you want to go into the the, the Marion Radcliffe one? We'll touch on it because we do want to move on because this is yeah. a probably heavy theme, but it's just a, mm. by well, work it's just, of coincidence, it's, it's been a theme across the papers. It is. I mean, across the papers today, like a lot of the better pieces are in this yeah. area. It's just a, it's a coincidental almost that that's the case. The headline is, I had no idea of the impact my father's drinking had. And it's a picture of Marion Rackard, Nicky Rackard's daughter. Nicky Rackard, one of the truly, truly great hurlers. He was in the team of the century. If you walk through Wexford Town, you'll see his statue, All-Ireland winner at Wexford. And in the 1970s, he wrote in the Sunday Press about his battle with alcoholism, which was a very revolutionary thing to do. We weren't, as Dennis Walsh points out, we weren't really of the uh, confessional uh, pieces in the paper type back then. So, for instance, um, you know, an excerpt from his Sunday Press piece in 1975. Once I went to a ball on a Friday, I came to myself in the local pub the following Tuesday, still in my dress suit. I didn't have a total blackout for the five days, but there were large gaps in my recollection. I still wouldn't admit to myself that I was an alcoholic. And uh, ultimately, uh, he took his last drink in 1970. He was 48 years of age. His daughter, Marion, who's interviewed in this piece, was 15. And he lived for six more years and succumbed to cancer in the end. And I suppose um, in those six years, he he reflected on his uh, situation and wrote about it. So what was particularly bad for him was after he won the All-Ireland in 56. He hadn't been drinking for five years at that stage, but on a trip to New York in the aftermath of the All-Ireland when he drank again. Over the next 13 years, his life and the life of those around him descended into hell. His veterinary practice suffered from neglect and he fell into debt. And uh, Marion is just recounting it here. And, you know... It's uh, you wouldn't need to be um, Freud or to uh, stretch too far as to how this happened. But she herself became a nurse and then went into addiction counselling and into psychotherapy. And uh, she talked about um, what it's like to grow up with your father who's uh, succumbed to addiction and how difficult it is and just the marks it leaves. And uh, Dennis Walsh writes about a residue of anxiety, depression and self-esteem issues. And, And she talks about, you know, your relationship with your parents has been so fundamental in every mm. way. So and uh, nobody comes out unscathed. And, and she says maybe in his reflections later in life, the one area he found difficult to really delve into and be totally honest about was the uh, effects it had maybe on his wife and on the children. Maybe that was just too difficult for him to countenance. So again, it's a um, fantastic interview. I don't quite know how it came about, but it's really good. It's, it's a brilliant. And Dennis Walsh is a brilliant writer to, to do it. Um, and it's funny because I knew the Nicky Rackard story. And to me, Nicky Rackard was was something of a hero because of like an extraordinary thing for a man in Ireland to do. A man who had achieved what Nicky Rackard yeah. had done and had achieved to actually reach this point of self-awareness. To me, who only knew the kind of bare bones of the story was kind of extraordinary in at, at that period. Mm. Uh, and then you read... And I still, you know, it, it is it is phenomenal that he he did stop drinking, 
uh, and you know it opens up this piece in, opens up with uh, Marion Rackard on her 21st birthday a fortnight after her, her father died she accepted an invitation to speak at an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and it was the kind of thing her father had done many times during the last half a dozen years of his life um, but as you say the consequences of it for families and she set up 20 years ago she set up a was one of the founders of Alcohol Action Ireland, um, a charity whose purpose was to change societal attitudes to drink. And that struck me as well, because again, we're talking about this, and you're like, you know, that is a charity which has clearly is very well-meaning. How effective has it been? Because when I read, when I read some of the stuff that Nicky Rackard wrote in 1975, Mm. I'm thinking, like the one you quoted, once I went to a ball on a Friday and came to myself in the local pub on the following Tuesday morning, uh, I still wouldn't admit to myself that I was an alcoholic. How many people mm. would have weekends like that and wouldn't, wouldn't even cro- cross their mind that there's something... Uh, maybe, it wouldn't, maybe, they'd, maybe they'd stop on Sunday. Maybe it'd be Sunday or Monday or something. And so maybe Tuesday might be a, maybe a, bit, a day too far for most people. Mm. But... I don't know how much uh, I don't know how much reckoning we've done about that societal uh, attitude to drink, and you know, again, he, she quote Dennis quotes from his piece. I thought this was a quote from from her from the interview, but it's actually from 1975 yes. in Ireland. While the alcoholic carries a stigma unjustly, the drunk is treated with a sort of amused tolerance. Mm. It is much. Still is. It is much harder to be a person who walks into a pub and say, "I'm not drinking." Yeah. Why? Why? What? What's what, like? Than to be somebody who's going to go in and drink and drink be a fourteen messy, point, messy be a messy drunk, drunk in the corner. Yeah. And that that had, so that's we're we're talking about fifty years ago, mm. and we still have that. So I so again in the, the all the pieces. I know we want to move on, but I just mm. think those. Those put together, it does it does tell us something about, and it goes back to what we said about Neil Francis talking about the thing, mm. and naming the thing. And what Tony Adams said, like it it is critical, it is really critical, and it still is critical. You know, forty forty seven years after Nicky Rackard did those pieces in the Sunday Press. Mm. I must go back and read them. I didn't know he had written about it in the Sunday press in 1975. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. I mean, like, nice. maybe sort of ignorance through sort of age. I, just, I knew he was a hurler, but, I, you, know, you know, the Nicky Rackard Cup. Yeah. I didn't necessarily know the, the story behind uh, the story behind the man. Uh, brief tangent, actually. I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. So I mentioned Katie Taylor's on the top right-hand corner of the Sunday Times, for instance. And, Dan, you took out your phone to show me that if anybody has the Sunday Independent e-paper this morning, yeah. which I'm sure lots do, then Con O'Callaghan won't mind, I'm sure. He's been replaced on the old analogue version with the picture of Katie Taylor celebrating. And a Sean McGoldrick report from New York right. as well. Yeah, yeah. I know Mick Foley's over there for the Times and uh, lots of journalists have gone over. And so, you know, I think it's one of those stories where if we were doing the paper review five, but certainly 10 years ago, we would have highlighted how, you know, God, this is why uh, papers are potentially in grave decline and... There's nothing they can do here. They can't compete with the digital world. It strikes me just by quirk of coincidence, we have two journalists here who are part of successful subscription models. And I suspect lots of independent readers now predominantly 
read their stuff online as opposed to buying the paper every day. And it does seem, you know, the independence recently gone subscription model. It does seem as if readers are increasingly far more happy to pay for quality than they were, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Whenever the Irish Times first went subscription and readers en masse said, hang on, I'm not paying. For, whoa, yeah. I'm not paying for this. And it was a big disaster. And the Times then uh, walked back from that and was free, but has subsequently managed to put together a very successful subscription model. It does feel as if uh, it's a less grim picture, me saying, oh, Katie Taylor's not in the papers here because people are paying to read about it online. Yeah, I mean, yeah, without going too too far down a sort of a media sort of wormhole, I suppose, but there is, um, yeah, like there is, there is a lot of good reading this morning, you know, on the Katie Taylor fight, and certainly I, I didn't stay up and watch it, I got up and watch it, so, you know, you wake up this morning and you can be reasonably well served. It wasn't like even Gavin Casey's piece, I must say, in the 42 is extre- extremely good. Yeah. Uh, live report, which really brings you there. I mean, we had Sean McGoldrick there, as you mentioned, um, and the other sites. Yeah, like it, it's, it's, the move towards the, the subscription model, I mean, how we did it in Ireland is still slightly, um, sometimes the wrong way around. You know, we went sort of free for a long, the times were almost ahead of its time, maybe with the subscription, it went too early potentially with it. And then, um, see, other companies would have given their stuff away free for a long time, and then subsequently put a paywall, which is what we, our company, did. But thankfully, the take up on description has been very good. You still have very good online service at the Forty Two, which everything is available for free, mm. effectively still. And then obviously, if the currency you've come on board, I know that's not sports per se, but has a sporting content um, and a sort of subscription only model, and it's. It seems in the last sort of 18 months or so, and I think maybe as well part of that was the, the lockdown as well too, to be fair, that I think it probably got a lot of people, more people it would seem, into the habit of paying for online content. You know what I think I it, it is as well? A lot of people have realised they're paying for Netflix, Spotify, etc. That's all incredibly normalised and they've realised, God, why wouldn't I pay for my news. Yeah, no, it's still slightly smaller numbers, and this is part of the. You're not doing as well as Netflix or. Well, <laughs> well, then, yeah, but Netflix has lost two hundred thousand subscribers and all those shared accounts. But like, it is slightly smaller numbers. But I think like media are still here trying to figure out what people pay for as well too, which is right. the interesting thing that like are people necessarily going to subscribe to read a say about. Uh, a lot of, say, Premier League stuff that is available everywhere in all manner of sites. And sometimes you find that people are more willing to subscribe for, like, slightly more niche stuff, you know, which is interesting. You can sort of track the data of what people will pay for and what they won't pay for. And it might surprise you sometimes, you know, what that actually might be. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's it's something like the Katie Taylor one is an interesting thing because, I mean, the fight is over when people get up this, get up this morning. So... What can you, you know, then you possibly have a, you have a, you're, you just have to provide the free news service. And it's the quality stuff around it that you're trying to find the right balance. But I think, yeah, people are now certainly, like people are, are they're sort of subscribing to sort of brands as opposed to papers, if you know what I mean. Like there is a sense of like that, they're, they're, you know, you chat to people who are, I don't know, they only maybe as well placed to speak about this because the currency has sort of gone into that market with no paper behind it, you know, and there's still, you still can't lose sight of like the, the paper reader which still exists and particularly at the weekend, you have a lot of people buying a physical paper and it's trying to 
get them to transfer to online as well too which is part of the, well, the challenge look I think there'll always be Sunday papers and, and people want to fall asleep on the couch and have read 5% of the behemoth that they've bought and they're yeah. happy with that kind of luxury item I suppose in a sense just one last question are you finding without divulging information you're not comfortable yeah. divulging are you finding that the pain reader are gravitating towards a big feature you would have or Paul Kimmage 6,000 words meeting Shane Lowry as opposed to 400 word piece on Conor McGregor buys new car yeah well you see I think that the, well what you'll find is that Conor McGregor buying a new car well that would probably be freely available you know that's, they're the pieces that you run out for free or the, the, the match report of Newcastle Liverpool that finished 10 minutes ago mm -hmm. there's no point putting that behind a paywall you know what I mean like yeah. uh, people would have probably watched that game but Again, without divulging sort of you know trade secrets or something like you know you can see the pieces that do very well like you know and like it's something like you know a big Paul Kimmage read um, with sort of Jason McAteer for example recently you know, I think that would have done incredibly well and okay. it shows that like people when presented with uh, what appears to be a, an in-depth sort of painstaking piece will subscribe and, and, and pay for that piece, okay. which, is, which is heartening. I've had one or two people, you know, I did a piece earlier this year, and this is my point about sort of niche. I did a piece earlier this year, say, on what's happened to Cork City in the last decade, which is a sort of a... Um, it's not Conor McGregor uh, buys car. No, it's not. But it actually did incredibly well in terms of like a take up of people taking subscriptions off, okay. which is unusual. But it, so that's actually heartening that yes, people are yeah. determined to pay for journalism. But you might have had more eyes on it if it was free, but it's it's about you know the history. It's your ego versus the business. Yeah, well, this is always the thing. But I mean, the papers gave away their stuff here for free online for too long. That was yeah. clearly a mistake. You know, that was clearly a mistake. Uh, Mr. Currency, speak to us. Interestingly, you had a piece beyond the paywall just this weekend. So give us yeah. your verdict. Are you heartened, as Dan said, by the take up and by uh, hopefully people being willing to pay for quality and, and realizing and sensing what is quality and what isn't? Yeah, I also think there's a kind of a sort of. A, almost imperceptible shift in how journalists talk about it. For a long time, there was a lot of stuff, you know, people would hashtag buy a paper or do this for the good of journalism. Now people read, like, I think it's now changed to, uh, we will give you the good stuff, but you're going to have, you know, like, but you'll, you'll be mm. paying for it. And I think that's the only way it ever works. Like, it only works if you're giving people things that they feel they, they want to read or they're, they're interested in reading. It can't be, it can't be as a kind of public duty to say, you know, that's why the, the hashtag buy a paper thing always made me laugh because it's like, it's not going to work. No. Like people aren't going to change their habits Can't because guilt you, them feel, into buying you, a paper. Yeah, you've, you feel uh, they must do so. But um, like at the currency, like we've just, we've just made a profit. You know, it's a very new company started just before lockdown. Like two of Ireland's best journalists, Tom Lyons and Ian Kyo, started and it's driven by those, those values. Um, and it is, uh, and it is heartening to see how people, you know, happy people have taken to it. Um, some of the, you know, and then when what you're obviously always trying to attract new subscribers and new people, but you're also always trying to give value to the subscribers. So, like you talk about the Liverpool piece being outside the paywall, um, like that's a way of kind of letting people know about what kind of stuff is there as well. But also, you know, the people who are subscribers are getting, and since, you know, since I joined, whatever, what, January 21, you know, we, it's all around what we do at the weekends. 
And so it's, you know, you're trying to get new subscribers through it, but you're also saying to the people who are subscribing that there's more, you're getting more for your, for your, for your commitment. Mm. And, and that is the other important thing too. So it's, uh, but again, and, and then going back, like it is, it is interesting. I think, you know, you say people always buy newspapers at the weekend. They probably will. But I think as a practitioner as well, the one thing that has struck me, and I've worked for two very different digital companies since I left the independent, uh, but there was always there was always a sense of kind of moving forward and trying new things. Um, but as a as a journalist, I think one of the things that actually being digital only means, like this weekend being a good example, is that you know you're not you're not tied to the slightly obsolete technology that is a print newspaper. Uh, and one of the things that I found, you know, that and I find that week in week out now, where we're, we're like. Do we have something to say about something? Not there's a not there's a there's a space on a page that we need to that we need to fill. It's like you know, is there something interesting we can add to this, or is there something we can say about this? Mm. Uh, which for years it was the other way. You know, I you know we've all done it. Like we need nine hundred. Like I've done Ireland press conference. You know, I don't know why all the Ireland press conferences jump into my head, but they always do. You know, we I still need, do them, Dino. Yeah, I know. Just, I'm sorry, Dan. And I know, choose your words. I, I will here, be right? very okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me think of a player who's retired. must that be? <laughs> you know, we need 900 words. We've done 900 words waiting on uh, on this. You know, we need to do 900 words on this. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't look at Dan while I'm saying this. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that sinking. Now I don't. Feeling. Now we just decide if people need this or not. You know, yeah, they need they, this in their life. Ring them and tell them they don't need. They don't need. They don't need, they don't yeah. need this. But you know, when people, like, people but, subscribe to read his thoughts on an Ireland press conference. But like, but you know, but but sometimes people do as well. Like this I'm is kidding. the thing. Of course you know, they do. it's but it's it's the it's the definition sometimes of premium versus the rolling news service. It's like the PA that it's there for people. It's like it is one of these things sometimes that we sometimes because it's not the most pleasurable stuff to write or do that we can sometimes say well people don't care what players say at a press conference and then sometimes you can actually track to that and see well actually quite a lot of people have actually read that it's not it's not the it's not the award-winning piece or prize or it's not something that maybe you want to invest a whole lot of time and energy in sending someone to do it but there's still a degree of carrying but, but yeah you know anyway what I mean? without, like, without going to yeah, yeah I would say sometimes there's like it's you know that ability to say there's nothing in this. Yeah, that's true. Versus yeah. we have to write something about this yeah. because no, it's otherwise a, it's a real luxury. Really no, 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 yeah. of course. Uh, yeah. uh, but you know, equally, there are, you know, there are times when it's, it's worth doing. Um, but uh, beyond that, no, I think it's like clearly people have, ch- you're right. Like I think people have made, uh, are aware now or, or, or just feel more, more comfortable doing it. And that's what you want, because yeah, I think, good. and it's, uh, and like, you know, as Dan said, and I, we, we were both at the Independent when they were giving everything away. And, uh, you know, I think then on the ego point, like obviously when you make something free or when it's free, you do reach people. But there's also that sense, like, I think there is a kind of a quieter satisfaction as journalists when you're kind of going, this, people are paying for this. People are uh and that payment is actually allowing us, you know, that was that is allowing is giving us some sense of uh, comfort and knowledge that we are actually, and this is what the currency is all about: is like everything we're we're, we're investing, mm. everything people are spending is actually going to people doing journalism, 
and to go to do and do more of it. So you actually feel like right, that investment is. It's not. It's not the. It's not the. It's not the direct ego hit of God, Dion, you're amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. which I always do like, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah. you, and you know, are amazing. Thank you, Joe. That's why I'm here. Uh, but also, you don't get as much of the, you know, the opposite of that. Sure. Uh, but uh, so it is. But it is. No, it is. It is encouraging. We won't get time to touch on every piece we had picked out. So a huge number of uh, GA match reports and you have things like Joe Brawley's writing about the importance of GA and in Tyrone and how they're all very Tyrone focused as opposed to the club game there. You have Colm O'Rourke on the Dubs Born Again Blues show the old di- dog can still bite. So lots of GA coverage. Uh, you also picked out a couple of pieces. Oh, there's a Mickey Whelan interview in the Sunday Independent. He's released his autobiography very reluctantly and uh, it's uh, a nice piece by Dan McCrowley. Yeah, really good yeah. shot. Yeah, he tells, you know, stories from yesteryear gone uh, very well and talks, you know, the loss of his wife and Kevin Heffernan both died in 2013 and tells some nice stories, memories of those two. And there's a great picture of him outside uh, Crow Park, 83 years old now, pretty much a legend in his own time. Each day he walks around 15K and uh, he uh, lifts dumbbells still, which we should all be doing as we get older. And he says at the end, this is how the piece finishes, I'm not going to boast to you, but I'll stand up and show you, he says, pointing to an area of his shoulder along the collarbone. Feel that area that. A ripple of hard muscle meets your fingertips, is uh, what Dermot Crow writes. Uh, which of us haven't asked people to feel that, feel that there? Yeah. No. Uh, it's kind of a funny end, but he's, he's, uh, he's in good form and it very reluctantly uh, has written this autobiography, but I suspect it'll be worth the read. So that's Mickey Whelan. You picked out uh, Shane McGrath on Roy Keane and Hibbs, Dan. So in effect, Shane McGrath is uh, saying that Roy Keane will potentially have to do a difficult thing here and he will have to acknowledge that uh, really a club appointing him, writes Shane, as their manager would see a big boost in ticket sales and TV trucks parked up outside the stadium a lot more often. It's a fake Keane should avoid and it would take extraordinary self-possession to admit as much but he should recognise that a club wanting him as its manager is probably attracted more by reputation than nous and therefore he should pass on the Hibs job and pass on other jobs, I suspect, unless it's really too good to be true. And it's an amazing offer. Uh, Keane now sought for fame more than managerial skills is the headline. Yeah, like I'm, I mean, I'm not so sure. I mean, I would necessarily agree with every point contained within the piece, but it's just the. I mean, you could argue that. I mean, was it that attraction that got Roy Keane the Sunderland job at whatever 35, 36? I mean. Possibly that was a factor in it too. You know, the, the could box, I put it to the only di- element, the only difference element. being that was a shot on somebody where you thought, well, he, he has incredible potential here, and there's a lot to point to him being a formidable presence in the dressing room. Whereas in 2022, those questions have been answered. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, the Keen one. I mean, I mean, Keen is like the it's like the recurring news story of like Roy Keane linked with a particular job, and that's one that definitely always guaranteed to get good traffic it must be said you know Roy Keane stories are always good for business for everyone um, and the extent to which this one actually is legit I think is debatable I mean the Sunderland one definitely was um, something that was uh, very much happening and, and could have happened the sense I've got with this one this week maybe not as much it's a little bit sort of uh, more vague uh, in terms of the extent of the interest even from either party if you know what I mean and and Hibs themselves have a slightly trigger-happy reputation in recent times that I do think from Keane's perspective... Listen, Keane's always been self-aware enough. Like he, Keane knows his power. Like he's always known his power 
And I don't think that, that would, um, the idea that uh, someone is hiring him because he's a big name, I mean, that is the story of his recent life. Like, sure. He'd have known that with a punditry, he'll have known that with commercial opportunities, he'll know that with a lot of other situations. And in fact, he always did as a player too. Um, Keen, for all you know, his flaws, you know, he does have a degree of self-awareness around um, his pulling power, his own status, you know, even the Instagram stuff and everything. He knows how, how that's going to work. Um, Despite his protestations. Yeah, this, it's, but it's protesting too much, mm. like really. You know, it, it is at times it's protesting too much and that's part of the, the charm for people. Um, I think with Keane it's more so a case that I think he really would take a job if it was offered to him. I mean, that Gary, inter that Gary Neville interview recently, um, was it the overlap, the one, the, mm. the most, and, and again, as I said, with Keane, sometimes he goes into character and, and there's, there's, there's layers to it. But the one time he was genuinely, I felt angry and engaged was when he was talking about all these other managers who keep getting jobs. You know, he went on about the people who get five, six, seven, eight chances. And you could speculate who he's talking about there. It could be anyone from sort of Mick McCarthy to Gary Rowett or whoever it might be. And you sense that Keane is sort of bursting to get back in, but there's maybe a little part of him niggling away that knows that he probably has one more shot. And if he went to a club that, you know, it didn't go particularly well, and they had a little slightly trigger hyper tendencies, um, but then he's done. Like, I don't know, I mean, it's funny, I'd still think, um, and Dion's covered Roy Keane probably for longer than me, and, and the sort of the various aspects to his character, like, you, you still wonder, is Roy Keane as the pundit happy? You know, and that is the debate. And is there an itch there that he still wants to scratch, that he won't rest, that he'll always carry that little bit of anger until there's one more gig in him? And maybe that one more gig is the gig that makes him realise, actually, no, I'm actually happy where I am on Sky. But I wonder, will that always linger, that sense of unfinished business? Because Roy Keane wasn't meant to leave football. I know he was Ireland assistant, an Aston Villa assistant, but he wasn't meant to leave football as the, the Ipswich manager, yeah. you know, who sort of left in gloriously. Shane makes the point, and this, I suppose, is one of the key points, the exact as exasperation he often expresses in the studio with the carry-on of today's players does not suggest he would easily make peace with the environment prevailing in dressing rooms today. This is the thing, like, we talk about Keane as if he's 75. <laughs> Uh, with good reason, like I totally understand. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, in, in, really, I agree with that point. And yet, Pep Guardiola at the cutting edge of 21st century management is younger than Roy Keane. Well, it's what I was going to make. Sorry, older, yeah, older yeah. than Roy Keane. Um, you see, the, that point about players today, like that point has been being made uh, about players today has been an expression used for about 25 years. Mm. Yeah. You know, so it isn't a new idea and uh, the idea of older pros being exasperated by whatever they get up to is is has been with us now for a generation See, this is his personality you think back to his autobiography and there's a searing scorching chapter in it the Eamon Dunphy one where he's recalling the 94 World Cup and the indulgence as I think he saw it of the nonsense as I think he saw it around the three amigos mm. And he does point out after laying it all out, you know, the hype and the photos and all this nonsense and like they're just young lads. He does point out, I was 22 years old 
Yeah, he was so, the same. He was the same age. He was he was younger, probably uh, probably younger than Phil Bab. He's had a, he's had a, a fairly uh, exasperated but, view of the modern day player but, since he was about but, twenty. But he was doing it then, correct? And and the Pep Guardiola point uh, and the, the 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 link there, I think as well as like you know Dan and we were talking about him taking over at Sunderland and just the potential of what could he be, like. I remember going to a lot of I went to a lot of Sunderland games when he was you know that first season in, in the championship and I went to his unveiling when he did like because you know it's it's crazy now although Shane touches on it as well but like the image of Keane in in Britain at that point was of the kind of the thug the guy who took yeah. out Haaland uh and he spent this day, he did all, you know, he spent this day at the unveiling doing every bit of pre- about four or five hours doing press and had everyone eating out of his hand. Like it was just that phenomenal, funny keen. Um, and times during that season, you thought this guy is going to be anything as yeah, a manager. This yeah. guy's, and, you know, at the same time, a year later, and like this, like there, I do think there's a thing about players who, and I think Lampard in a strange way at Everton, and you saw it last week with the way they played against Liverpool, uh, and he re- referenced his own career as a Chelsea player. Players who've been successful, I think are, 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 uh, are, are, inhib- are, are, are damaged in some ways in terms of how much they can absorb new ideas and be modern because they have this template to fall back on which Keane does to caricature levels of like this is how we did it Lampard fell back you know Lampard is a young manager and he was playing an outdated way of football last weekend um, but the counterpoint uh, counter argument to that is Guardiola who did everything as a player now okay Barcelona are a slightly different club but he's comes comes into management a year after Keane at Barcelona B and becomes one of the most evolutionary progressive thinkers the game has ever seen. Um Keane hasn't done that. He's frozen in time. He's talking about players. He's look at uh, you know and it it is interesting and it's dynamic and it's exciting when he does when he has a go on Sky, but it isn't the own look look at look at Jurgen Klopp. Nobody could ever like whatever about Pep and you know you like nobody could ever say Klopp isn't interesting or isn't exciting or isn't dynamic and yet um, he manages and this is why it's not a, a recent thing because Wenger and Ferguson did it too they managed to be enraptured by their players at least publicly and encouraging of their players and all look at the way can you imagine can you imagine Roy Keane dealing with the Mo Salah contract conversation mm. you know yeah can you imagine how he would have deal with it rather than the way the way Klopp deals with it where he just makes like everything is fine whatever is going to happen who knows and Klopp knows probably a lot more but he's never like you know he's not coming out Keane would lose his, his well, and, he, had a, he had a situation with John Walters leaving yeah 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 one of the most sound like you know admirable footballers you can meet but Keane almost took it personally when actually Walters was taking a very pragmatic decision yeah. to go from a championship club to a Premier League one which is exactly what Keane the player would have done almost in that So in the point yeah but, sorry but, so can I just finish so the point yeah. the point no 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 I think that's that's like the point I would say about this and whether he goes has one last crack at management it doesn't matter how many more cracks at management he has unless Keane is actually going to go in and do something different, yeah, or be something different. Like, and do we think there's any chance of that? 
Well, it strikes me because so. in quite a few of the interviews, even the most recent one with Carragher, where he, he felt he would not get another crack, what he said was, when you have a great dressing room or a good dressing room, it's the best job in the world. And he loves it. But he said, when you don't have a great dressing room, ooh, and he said something very withering uh, to the extent of his complete intolerance for that kind of a situation. <laughs> I think he needs to face the reality that great dressing rooms, one, are very few and far between. And two, he's almost certainly unlikely to inherit one from a manager who's been but, sacked. But, but and where, so he needs to where almost... Where does he think the great dressing room comes from? Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah, what, like, where does he... How does, how does that happen? Mm. Like, that's the, the... There's... It is that expression. I, I, I used it last week talking about Manchester United in a piece. Like, you know, the, the saying, if you meet, yeah. meet one asshole in the morning, you've met an asshole. Yeah. If you meet five assholes during the day... Maybe it's you, you're the you're the asshole. Yeah, yeah. And like you know, Roy Keane goes into addressing who are these all these unbelie un- incredibly who are these assholes? He called them frauds and con men, yeah, not yeah. real pros. So, but yeah, I, I there's, think there's, like, if he could if he could just get in and have the patience to root them out slowly and not lose his spirit and his love for the job and bring in the type of players he likes to work with, like there is. But there isn't. There is. There, there, there aren't. There aren't those. His like, definition of a great, yeah, like his definition of a great dressing room may not exist anymore. Well, that's like, true. You look at the, the end of like the football league yesterday, like Rotherham promoted and whoever else was promoted. Yeah, Wigan. Like they may have a, a great dressing room, but it's molded in the realities of what football is now, and it may not be Roy Keane's definition of a great dressing room. There may not be people calling people out in the dressing room and telling them to stand up. It actually may be tolerant sometimes of people's weaknesses in a way that Keane may not be tolerant of some of those things. You know, you could have players indulged in those dressing rooms who he wouldn't indulge, but that is maybe what defines a great dressing room now. But then to give him, like, but this is where the endless contradictions are. He's seen a Canton have been indulged. He's talked openly about indulging certain players. It's not like he's totally black or white. Keane was indulged. Yeah, yeah like for he, sure. So he would Keane understand was that. indulged. Like, this and is it, the thing, and this is, this is the... But he was indulged in a way that he sees was kind of like the way real men were indulged. Yeah. Like, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a self mythology. It's a romanticization around around things. You know, Alex Ferguson uh, had to come and get him. Get you know, like, like the story. Like after they won the the league in '99. You know, like like Keane ended up. In a in a in a prison cell in Manchester, in a police cell in Manchester, mm. you know, and Alex Ferguson has to go and get him. Is that indulged? Like, is that is that more? Is is that a manager? Who which manager is indulging a player more? Alex Ferguson, who does that and recognises that this player is so important to me, uh, or like a manager who overlooks, say, his his player changing exchanging shirts at half time with a member of the opposition, you know, something yeah. or something that would enrage Keane. Mm. Uh, now Keane would see them as like this is just me going out you know uh, and that's what we did and that's how we but he was indulged yeah and people, I know we're probably t- in time but like, the, the contradiction of like people will always talk about Roy Keane with his high standards but there's that great story you know about the time he, he was at Ipswich he let the players out on a, a night out after a trip to Spain or something and actually then berated the squad that no one got in trouble <laughs> yeah. after the night out yeah. so people are trying to figure out hang on what do we what do we want because here? that's what he you're sees not, you're again not, uh, you know you're, you're not a proper group but, of men here fair, I, I wanted a phone call to, here to, yeah. Yeah. Fair, to be fair to him he is no? he is so complex that some of the players he really liked and gravitated towards at Manchester United like a Mark Bosnich who turned up late for training and Keane remembered like, geez, I got a taxi to train in the first day and followed it so I wouldn't be late, so I knew the way. Bosnich turns up late for his first day and Keane's like, geez, late to train your first day for Manchester United. But he couldn't help but say, 
he was a good lad. He was fun and I liked him. So he's not intolerant of, like you wouldn't think him and Mika Richards were the dream team. And yet he does have an ability to connect with someone who's much younger, obsessed with social media and is totally at odds with him personality oh, yeah. Which is why I feel like there could still be something but if he can bring, you know, yeah, but if really he can bring with the right number two, with the right coach, no, it's not the right, it's nothing like that. It is, he would need to bring something different to be able to maintain that personality. Uh, because one of the things I think is interesting about Keane when he is on Sky is that I don't like, you know, people they 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 they, they you know, it's bad, it's banter, but it is like the, the way they will they will they will. Take the piss out of the Roy Keane persona mm. because they don't, they don't have it. They, they don't care. They don't really care like what what Roy Keane says to them. They're all independent people who don't who who, who what Roy Keane how Roy Keane responds has no impact on their lives. Uh, and I think you know if Keane could somehow allow that same kind of, and he responds because he he kind of feels like these guys you know they're 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 not afraid of me. And I think if he could actually allow that in in when he's dealing with dressing rooms but I think when he gets into a dressing room if we've seen it we saw you know Ipswich saw it with Ireland we saw when he gets into a dressing room the other things take over and, uh, and until that changes I don't think it really matters how many jobs he takes maybe he'll mellow 51 now mm. I hope there's one more chapter in it I'd hate to see him in a Sky Studio for the next decade and a half and that be it. But it will be a chapter where we're all, the whole point is, are we waiting for the football or are we watching for the explosion? You know, and that's, and listen... I Hopefully mean, the football and a few explosions will be anything. fine. Yeah, the press conferences. We are out of time. We're way out of time. But thank you so much. Dan McDonald of the Irish Independent, Dion Fanning, Associate Editor at The Currency. Gents, thanks very much for popping sure. in. Enjoy the yes. chat. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.